Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 350, Thoughts on My Dialogue with Craig on the Trinity and the Bible, Part 1. I really enjoyed my recent interaction with Dr. William Lane Craig about our clashing views about God and Jesus and the Bible, and I found it very interesting and enjoyable to reflect on the back and forth and see if I can advance the discussion a little bit more. Earlier today, I did an interview for Pastor Sean Finnegan's excellent Restitutio podcast, and in part of that, I even said that I would love to have a full-length debate with Dr. Craig about the Trinity, maybe to promote the book that we're both going to be a part of in 2023. Frankly, he's fun to argue with. He makes real moves. He doesn't just bully and try to get by on verbal force or force of personality. He's trying very carefully to carve out a defensible trinity theory, and it's very interesting even when it doesn't fully convince. So thanks again to him and to Jordan Hampton for making our discussion possible. In this and the next episode of the Trinity's podcast, I'm going to kind of review the dialogue without quoting any parts of it. I'm eventually going to admit an important mistake I made. I'm actually going to try to steal man some things that Dr. Craig said. In other words, help him out, give a better formulation than the one that he actually gave. Try to figure out what he's trying to do and help him to do it better and see how that goes. The first thing that really struck me about the debate is how much he concedes about creedal trinity theories. I mean, in a sense, he throws them under the bus. He implies that they're complex, they're convoluted, they're just problematic They're opposite in those ways to the simpler sort of trinity theory that he wants to defend. He correctly points out that they involve weird, questionable claims, and claims, moreover, that are just not supported by the Bible. Any creedal trinity theory, he says, quite correctly, adds to the claims we can actually find in the Bible. And so these extra claims are just later than the whole New Testament era. The Protestant should be disturbed by that. So these later, more elaborate Trinity theories are not defensible using the Bible and reason. They actually clash with true New Testament teaching. In his view, as we'll discuss at length here, the Father and Son are equally divine, and yet if the Father eternally is causing the Son, then the Father would have the perfection of divine aseity, which the Son would lack. Aseity is existing independently of anything else. And so, when the creedal doctrines incorporate this doctrine of eternal generation and eternal procession for the Holy Spirit, In Dr. Craig's view, they clash with this New Testament teaching of the equal divinity of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Now, I have to say, I think he's right that divine aseity is a perfection which a perfect being must have. And I also think it's right that generation and procession clash with the caused beings existing ase. Of course, I won't agree that the New Testament asserts the equal divinity of Father and Son. Now, this is really an extraordinary bunch of admissions. Because most apologists defending, quote, the historic Christian doctrine of the Trinity, end quote, are precisely defending the creedal compliant type of Trinity theory. People like James White, Matt Slick, and a host of others. So, nope, those guys are wrong. That kind of triune God theory is just not defensible. I agree, and I appreciate his intellectual honesty in pointing that out. 
be better rhetoric to just suggest that it's all defensible. But no, he's going to go for a lesser theory. Now, in throwing full-blown creedal Trinitarian theories under the bus, why isn't it that he's run out of town by the rest of the Trinitarians? Why isn't he getting tarred and feathered, so to speak? Well, you can check out Trinity's podcast 232, Trinity Club Orientation, for the reason why that is never going to happen. Now, as with any public debate like this, Dr. Craig has received some petty criticisms, as have I, but there's no way he's going to pay a significant price for all those honest admissions. He's not going to be kicked out of the Trinity Club. And again, I think there is some intellectual honesty and even intellectual bravery shown in this admission. Also, I have to commend him for really being committed to Scripture over later traditions when the two of them clash. Most Protestants agree that we shouldn't defend everything that's affirmed by the so-called ecumenical councils. That would include even the Seventh Ecumenical Council, Nicaea II in 787, which basically authorized Christian idolatry. Again, Dr. Craig is correct that nothing in Scripture teaches that the Father eternally generates the Logos, or that the Father or the Father and the Son spirate the Spirit, whatever that might mean. So like me, Dr. Craig just disagrees with some of the so-called ecumenical councils. Like Radical Reformation people, we agree that the true New Testament doctrine of the one God clashes with the mainstream creedal tradition. But Dr. Craig is looking for a sort of middle way. He doesn't want to commit to the creeds, and yet he's not willing to let go of being Trinitarian. So he's trying to define some defensible core to Trinity traditions, a sort of mere Trinitarianism, such that indisputably all of those minimal claims are taught in the Bible. Well, that's an interesting project, and I think it's one that probably many Protestants will be sympathetic to. But does it work? Is there any such bare-bones Trinity theory which is just kind of obviously in the Bible, or implied by it, or assumed by it? That would be good enough. In fact, it'd be good enough if it was just the best explanation of what we do and don't see in the Bible. So let's talk about this so-called biblical Trinitarianism, which he tells us is simple, straightforward, and unproblematic. And this is what he meant when he used the term tripersonal theism, I take it. I think his Trinity monotheism in his old book chapter and some short follow-up articles would be something different than this. So Dr. Craig has his own suggestion, his own theory that God is a single soul with three different cognitive faculties. This somehow explains God being composed of three persons. Okay, so it seems to me there are three kinds of Trinity theories he's distinguishing. There's the hopeless kind, which are the full-blown creedal Trinity theories. He's given up on those. There's his Trinity monotheism, one soul with three thinking faculties, and somehow this gives us three proper parts of God, which are ourselves. This is just his suggestion for interpreting the tradition. It's not a required belief. It's more like if you're going to say that the Bible is self-contradictory regarding the Trinity, he will say, well, here's one way to take it, and I don't think this is self-contradictory. So there, what about that? It's admittedly a speculation. The third kind of Trinity theory for him is this minimal biblical view, which he calls tripersonal theism, which he says is just two claims. Really? Just two? We'll come back to that. The two claims are that there's one God, oh, and also there are three persons, such that each of them is properly called God. Now, that minimal theory, presumably that's mandatory for Christians, as according to him, it's clearly taught in Scripture. 
So let's focus on this last sort of Trinity theory, the kind which is supposed to be actually in the Bible. Unfortunately, I have to say that it's not straightforward, simple, or unproblematic. But let's step back and look at what he's trying to do. One way I would put it is that he's trying to out Warfield Warfield. So Warfield was a late 19th, early 20th century scholar who published a famous article on the Trinity in a religious encyclopedia. And in that encyclopedia article, he says that if you can just find these three claims in Scripture, then the doctrine of the Trinity is in Scripture. Now, as I explained in podcast 260, how to argue that the Bible is Trinitarian, what he spins as three claims are really clearly seven claims. Like he just doesn't know how to count claims, like someone would know who took a good logic or a critical thinking class. Maybe Warfield just wasn't well-trained in logic, or maybe he's just being a little disingenuous. I'm not sure. But this move of saying, hey, it's just these few claims, just three, right? Maybe four or five. This move of minimizing the number of claims has been followed by countless later apologists, right? And the hope is the fewer the claims that you have to find in the Bible, the easier that's going to be. Again, as I showed, even in Warfield, there are seven claims there. And as I also argue in that lecture, even that seven would seem to be too few, especially if you're going to throw the processions in there. So in the Westminster Confession of Faith, famous early modern creed from 1646, I count 10 claims about the Trinity there. But whatever is going on with Warfield and these many later apologists, Dr. Craig is well-trained in logic and in critical thinking, and he surely does know how to count claims. So when he says there are just two claims, he's really speaking loosely. It's more than that. I'll come back to that in a minute. But let's go back to his definition, because I think there are some significant problems for it. He says that for this minimal trinity theory, there is one God, and there are three persons, each of whom is properly, he says, called God. Now, on the face of it, it's very odd to define a type of theology using a claim about proper word usage. But I guess he's trying to just bring things down to the Bible's level. I guess he just thinks it's obvious that the Bible ascribes the same sort of divinity to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Despite, as I point out, that seemingly no one in church history thought that before the second half of the fourth century, unless you count modalists, which you shouldn't. But again, that definition as it stands is clearly too wide. If you say any theology is Trinitarian, if there's one God and three persons, each of whom is properly called God, that does let in, say, Samuel Clark, the famous Unitarian subordinationist, as a biblical Trinitarian, which is wrong. As he points out, the word God is used in higher and lesser senses, and it is proper to call those three God in the different senses. Origen has this big long passage in his commentary on John, which is about different senses in which the Greek word theos can be used. And he's very clear that the Father is the only one who can be called theos, God, in the highest sense, because he's just the one true God. The second highest sense of the word God is only applicable to the Logos. And then the word God is applicable to the Spirit in a still lesser sense. And going farther down, uh, he thinks you can call the stars gods, because he thinks there are living, eternal entities. And he thinks you can call saved human beings gods. So there's a gradation of uses of the word God, according to him. And you just as easily could put it as that there are gradations in our concept of divinity, you could talk about God being fully divine, the Logos as being somewhat less divine, the Spirit as being yet somewhat less divine, and then you can keep going down the ladder. So his definition, I think Dr. Craig doesn't really mean a proper usage. Maybe all these usages are proper. 
but I think rather he means something like a central usage or a high usage of the term God or of the adjective divine. And he stipulated in our discussion that in a proper usage, we just can't be talking about any angel or mere man. Okay, that's fine. You can stipulate whatever you want. But just saying that isn't specific enough, as I'll get back to in a second. Part of the problem with the definition is that it doesn't tell us what is the relation between the one God and the three persons. That is why someone like Clark could just agree with it. He doesn't have a tripersonal God, but he agrees there is one God. That just is the Father himself. The definition doesn't say that the persons of God are parts of God, or they are in any way in God, which is a mistake. This is supposed to be defining the minimal claims of a trinity theory, and unless there is a concept of a tripersonal God in a theology, it's not a Trinitarian theology. I think Dr. Craig was maybe assuming that he had implied that God is triune there, but look, it's just not in the definition. The definition needs fixing. As it stands, it doesn't clearly rule out modalism either, unless we add that the persons mentioned really ourselves, thinking beings, persons in the sense of distinct, intelligent thinking and acting agents. I think he's probably assuming that as well. We should probably put that in the definition somewhere. Interestingly, if we do put that in the definition of this minimal biblical Trinitarianism, then that rules out what I have called oneself Trinitarians. People like the philosopher Brian Leftow and like the two most famous Trinitarian theologians in the 20th century, Karl Barth and Karl Rahner. They don't think there are three selves in the Trinity. And so then if we define this biblical Trinitarianism as including three divine selves, they are just, they're not going to count. They're not going to be biblical Trinitarians. Fine, if that's a move that Dr. Craig wants to make, he can make that move. But can we just stop talking about the doctrine of the Trinity as some one set of claims which all mainstream theologians have long agreed on? When the Trinity's podcast returns, I try to fix Dr. Craig's definition of a minimal and biblical tripersonal theism. So let me try to steal man, right? Steel manning is the opposite of straw manning, his definition. Instead of, you know, giving an inaccurate description of it and then ridiculing that, beating a straw man, not the man himself, let me take what he said, which is inadequate in a bunch of ways, and try to figure out what he's trying to do and fix the problems that I see and then see if that works better. Okay, so I'm trying to help him here in his positive project of laying out a minimal Trinitarianism that is defensible and that really is in the Bible. Maybe something like this. There is one God, who by the way is not a self, in whom, never mind the pronoun, there are exactly three selves, each of which is fully divine. Okay, so I got rid of the ambiguous term persons because the one self Trinitarians want to quibble about that. 
I added the claim that the three selves, which are fully divine, are in God. So there's your concept of a tripersonal God. And instead of the claim about proper word usage, I said instead that each person is fully divine, as in the most divine anything could be. What about that? That there is one God, who is not a self, in whom there are exactly three selves, each of which is fully divine. But hold on now. Is that phrase, fully divine, really what Dr. Craig wants? Are we talking top-level divinity here? You made clear it's not the divinity that could be said about an angel or a mere human. So is this the kind of divinity that only the one God could have? Well, according to his book chapter from 2003, that can't be right. It can't be right to use the phrase fully divine in the formula. In that book chapter, second edition, page 589, he asserts very clearly that only the Trinity is fully divine. That is to say, divine in the way that implies being a god. In other words, only the Trinity, the one soul that he thinks is God, is numerically identical to a god. So he should not say that the persons are fully divine, or divine in the highest sense, or divine in the sense of instantiating the divine nature, because that would make each one of them a god. And not being identical, but rather distinct, they're not going to be the same god. Okay, so if only the Trinity is a God here, then only the Trinity is divine in the highest sense, or only the Trinity is called God in the highest sense. Same thing, I think. Now, I think this is why he asserts in our conversation that clearly his Trinity monotheism, one soul with three cognitive faculties, is monotheistic, for it's that one soul which is identical to God, and nothing else is identical to the one God. I agree that that would be monotheism, But it's not the biblical kind, because he's just demoted the Father from being the one true God, which the New Testament clearly teaches. At any rate, he said in our dialogue words to the effect that the deity ascribed to the Son in the New Testament is not some watered-down or lesser kind. Well, he needs it to be a lesser kind. He needs it to be a kind of divinity that doesn't imply being a god. Otherwise, he'll have four gods, three persons plus the Trinity. Again, in the book chapter, he says that only the Trinity instantiates the divine nature. Only the Trinity is a God. Now, by the way, many Trinitarians disagree with this. Relative identity Trinitarians do think that each person is a God. And so, each person is divine in the highest sense, which implies being a God. But they add that the three of them are somehow the same God, even though they're not absolutely identical. Also, those many Trinitarians who would just accept the kind of incoherent Trinity theory suggested by the famous Trinity Shield diagram, on which each person is numerically the same as the one God, they would assert, as part of their theology, that each person is divine in the highest sense. Each one just is a God. They are each, they think, identical to the one God. Never mind that this logically contradicts the three of them being distinct from each other. That's why it's an incoherent view. Okay. So he can't have the three persons being God in the highest sense, and yet he stipulated that they're God in a higher sense than any angel or mere man could be called God? Like, what if we just say, following, again, that book chapter, that they're divine in this way, being a proper part of God? That is, being a proper part of a whole, which is God in the highest sense. Okay, so how many claims would we then have? Two? No, we'd have seven. 
here they are. One, the Father is a self who is a proper part of God. Two, Son is a self who is a proper part of God. Three, the Spirit is a self who is a proper part of God. Four, the Father is distinct from the Son. The Son is distinct from the Spirit. Six, the Father is distinct from the Spirit. In other words, none of those things is identical to any of the others. And then the seventh claim is that there is only one God. Okay, so it looks like there are going to be seven claims, not two. That's about a normal count if you're going to jettison traditional speculations about divine processions. Is it clear, as Dr. Craig suggested? I think my improved version is pretty clear. Yeah. I mean, it conflicts with traditional divine simplicity, but we don't want that anyway. That's part of the later incoherent creedal trinity theories. Now, the fourth, fifth, and sixth claims that I just gave you, and which I think he wants to be presupposed by this biblical tripersonal theism, as I said them, do employ the concept of identity. It's denying the identity of the Father and Son, denying the identity of the Son and the Spirit, and denying the identity of the Father and the Spirit. Now, if, as I'll discuss later, Dr. Craig is right that the ancients didn't have a concept of identity, then they wouldn't be able to commit to such claims. I don't agree with that, but anyway, I guess he could just, instead of those three statements, say that the Father is not the same person as the Son, the Son is not the same person as the Spirit, and then that the Father is not the same person as the Spirit. Okay, but remember what we're trying to do. We're trying to find a small number of claims which kind of, as it were, lie in the face of the New Testament. Does the New Testament have anything that sounds like ascribing parts to God? Does any author in the New Testament say, well, don't think that the Father is all of God. The Father is indeed a proper part of God, but there are two other proper parts of God. I don't think so. I think New Testament talk of Father, Son, and Spirit is just devoid of any part-whole talk. It seems ridiculous to say that these are obvious teachings of Scripture. Now, in the past, in his previous chapter and articles, Dr. Craig has been very ambivalent about whether he really wants to stake his claim on the persons being parts of God. So maybe I shouldn't try to steal man his formulation in this way. In the discussion we just had, he seemed pretty friendly to the idea of the persons as parts of God, but never mind that. Maybe that's a speculation, and maybe the simple biblical trinity, which is in Scripture, should instead be thought to be something like this. Leave the last four claims, that each of the three are distinct from each other and there's only one God. Leave those, but change the first three claims to these. One, the Father is a self who is divine in a greater way than any angel or mere human but in a lesser way than God. Two, the Son is a self who is divine in a greater way than any angel or mere human, but in a lesser way than God. Three, the Holy Spirit is a self who is divine in a greater way than any angel or mere human, but in a lesser way than God. To abbreviate, the Father is a self who is divine in a high middle way, let's say. The Son is a self who is divine in a high middle way. Again, greater than any man or angel, but less than God. The Holy Spirit is a self who is divine in a high middle way. Is this more plausible when it comes to being found in the New Testament? I mean, I don't think it is. How would you argue that whenever the Father and Son and Spirit are referred to as God, that is precisely this second highest sense of the word God that's meant? 
I don't know. And remember that I pointed out, and that Dr. Craig did not really dispute, that a triune God is never directly mentioned using any word or phrase in the New Testament. If that's right, then in the New Testament, according to Dr. Craig, there will not be any highest usage of the terms divine or God. The, sense, the senses of those which imply being a God, those won't occur in the New Testament, since, the, since only the Trinity is a God, and the Trinity goes unmentioned. That seems to me like a bizarre result. Isn't the main and central New Testament use of the term God the highest use, where the one so-called is a God, namely the only God, namely Yahweh of the Old Testament? I think so. I think the main New Testament use is the highest use. I don't think it's the second highest use that his theory would require. But to admit this would be to give up on his central argument, which I'll talk about later. The next thing I want to talk about is something that we went around the bush a few times on in our discussion, which is how on earth do you get three divine selves from a soul that has three cognitive faculties? So a cognitive faculty is a general power of thinking, which he says is sufficient for personhood. Now, when he says that such a faculty is sufficient for personhood, then I chime in, yes, they're sufficient to make that very thing, the owner of the faculty, a person. Who is the owner of the faculty in Dr. Craig's theory? It's this one soul, which is God. And so having even just one of these faculties will make God a person. Now, this seems really obvious to me, and I tried to make the point in various ways, and it just seemed to bounce off him. Let me give three analogies that I think can help. As I exist, I only have one walking faculty. It's grounded in my having healthy legs, basically. I am a walker. I'm able to walk. I have a walking ability. That's a walking faculty. Now, suppose someone could wave a magic wand and make me sprout two more legs out of my butt cheeks and then I sprout two more legs in the front. So now I have six legs, and I can walk on any pair of them. I can walk on just the front legs. I can walk on the normal legs I have, and I can walk on the legs that come out of my butt. I would have three different walking faculties, right? Any one of those would be sufficient by itself to make me a walker, a thing that can walk. Having three walking faculties doesn't make me three walkers. It makes me one walker who can walk in three different ways. Or maybe more than three if I could combine the use of the pairs. But anyway, at least three ways, right? Here's another stupid analogy, another silly thought experiment. I've got this original brain in my head, but then a mad scientist manages to give me two more brains. He can't figure out where to put them, so uh, he hollows out my left butt cheek, puts a brain in there, hooks it up to my spine, puts another brain in my right butt cheek. So, you know, it hurts, and I think weird thoughts when I sit down. But anyway... Everything works great when I'm standing up. And let's just add that there's one soul here. Each brain, of course, gives the one person here a general power of thinking. So it looks like in virtue of having the three brains, I will have three thinking faculties, one for each brain. Maybe I'll even have three, quote, centers of consciousness. But this having three faculties of thinking, three powers of thinking, doesn't make me three thinkers, doesn't make me three persons. I use my brain when I think, but I am the thinker, not the brain. So then I would be able to use my head brain or my left cheek brain or my right cheek brain to think. 
I'd be able to think in three ways. Now, maybe if you gave me a really hard calculus problem, I could use all three at once. I don't know. So maybe it'd be more than three ways because I could use combinations. But anyway, if I have three powers of thinking, that makes me a thinking being who's overdetermined to be a thinking being. It doesn't make me three thinkers. It makes me one being who can think in three different ways. One more analogy. This one I actually gave in print in a published article. Suppose there's this bad husband He's got three qualities, each of which by itself would be sufficient for being a bad husband. He beats his wife, he cheats on his wife, and he neglects his wife. Each one of those properties by itself would be sufficient for being a bad husband. That he has three such qualities does not make him three bad husbands. It makes him one bad husband whose badness as a husband is overdetermined. Even if you took away the neglect, he'd still be bad in virtue of his wife being and his cheating. And similarly, if you took away one of the other bad qualities. That just shows you that there are three properties, each of which alone would be sufficient for him being a bad husband. Now, at one point in our discussion, Dr. Craig says, hey, this is my model, one soul with three cognitive faculties. If you think it's incoherent, it's your job to show that. Yes, I agree, and I think I just did show that it's incoherent. Now, he seems to be imagining that somehow God's, this soul's, having of each faculty is sufficient for his maybe containing a person, having a person as a proper part. Anyway, that somehow each faculty gives rise to a person rather than making the owner of the faculty a person. If each faculty just by itself magically gives rise to a person, then since there are three such faculties, there will be exactly three persons, in some sense, in God. But again, whose powers are these? They're the souls. So they're going to make the soul a person, not somebody else, not just a part of the soul. They're going to make the whole soul a person. Why on earth would you think that the soul, having a general power of thinking, somehow magically brings into existence some other thinking thing? I don't know. So I think Dr. Craig's suggestion is unintelligible. I think he's just special pleading in suggesting that somehow this explains why there are three persons in God. It doesn't. None of us can see the connection there between the soul with three thinking faculties and the soul being somehow composed of three thinkers without itself being one. He says at one point, look, I don't mean the Trinity to be something like a single self suffering from multiple personality disorder. Well, sure, but that wasn't my objection. My objection is that you can't seem to get from one soul with three cognitive faculties to a soul which somehow is or contains or has as parts three persons, because those faculties would just overdetermine the soul's own personhood. The soul which has those powers would just be a self for three different reasons, because he has this thinking power, because he has this other thinking power, and because he has this third thinking power. A soul like that wouldn't need to be anything like a victim of multiple personality disorder. Dr. Craig will say that like you and me, God the Trinity is a single soul, but whereas you have one set of cognitive faculties, and I would add, which makes you the one with those faculties, a person. In contrast to that, God, he likes to say, is more richly endowed with cognitive faculties, And so is composed of three persons? 
but this last seems to be a non sequitur. How does that follow from having three different cognitive faculties that you, in any sense, contain three persons? Dr. Craig has work to do if anyone is going to agree with that inference. He wants that inference. I don't see how he gets it, though. It's not enough just for his theory to need it. We need to see how to get from A to B, so to speak. When the Trinity's podcast returns, does Dr. Craig's Trinity monotheism involve three selves or four? Okay, now to a closely related worry about Dr. Craig's Trinity theory. And this, to be clear, is a worry about his Trinity monotheism, his speculation about God being a soul with three cognitive faculties, and not his mere bare-bones biblical Trinity theory. Okay, so in the book chapter, he says that God the Trinity is perfect in power, perfect in knowledge, and perfect in goodness because the persons that compose the Trinity are those things. Okay, but never mind why he is, but if God is those things, then God has to be a self. Conceptually, you have to be a self to be perfect in knowledge, power, and goodness. His reply is that, no, God only has to be personal. It doesn't have to be a person. I think he must mean by personal, having at least one person as a part, or in some sense, having persons within him, or something like that. Now, let's think carefully here. Having at least one person as a part, or having a self or a person within one, does not seem to make the whole a person too. At one point in our dialogue, Dr. Craig asserted that the Trinity too has knowledge, will, intentionality, and so on, which is to say that it's a self, even while he's denying exactly that. But again, having a part which is a self doesn't imply that the whole is a self. A soccer team, you could say, is personal, but the soccer team itself can't literally, say, plan a meal or be sad or solve a math problem. It, the soccer team, just isn't that kind of thing. It's not a self. It's not conscious at all. If you think the soccer team is a thing, you'll think of the players as its parts, and you'll call the team an it. If you think there isn't a team which is a thing, then you'll think that the term soccer team is merely a plural referring term, and you'll probably call the team they, just referring to each one of the individual players, and not to any whole that they compose. But normally we don't call a soccer team a he or a she, unless we're using that figure of speech called personification, because we don't think that the team is a self. You can say it's personal if you want, but it's not a person. Only its parts or members are selves. You could even say of the team that it is many selves, in that there are many selves within the team, but that doesn't entail that the team is a self. So again and again, Dr. Craig agrees that the Trinity isn't a self, but then he says it can be, for instance, perfectly loving because it's personal, but that's no help unless personal implies being a self. 
He'll say that being personal means that God isn't just one person, which suggests that it entails being one plus more, but then again, he denies that it entails being one. Maybe a better way to ask him the question would be this. Is God the Trinity, in your view, numerically identical to a self? If it is, then you've also made clear that each of the persons is a self, and so there will be four selves in this theory. The Trinity isn't going to be the same self as any of the others, because it's going to differ from each of the others. So it'll have to be a fourth self if it is a self. If God the Trinity is not numerically identical to any self, well, then it's false that the Trinity is perfect in power, knowledge, and goodness, for only a self could have those three perfections. That's why at one point in the dialogue I tried to interpret his theory charitably by suggesting that he means to say that uh, the predicates, knowledgeable, powerful, and loving, can be said of both the persons, because they literally are those things, and of the Trinity, but in a different sense. Of course, that suggestion is odd. When we say that X is loving, we don't mean that X has a proper part which is loving. Rather, we mean that X itself is loving, the whole X, if X is a thing with parts. But we do talk like this sometimes. For instance, we'll say that this married couple loves their daughter. When we say this, really we think there are only two lovers, the mom and the dad. It's not that the mom loves the daughter, the dad loves the daughter. Oh, and also the couple loves the daughter. We will talk improperly about the couple loving the daughter, but that's just a shorthand way of saying, isn't it, that the mom loves the daughter and so does the dad. So maybe if you say God is perfect in power, knowledge, and goodness, that's just shorthand for saying that the proper parts of God, the members of the Trinity, are perfect in those ways. But he seemed to reject that. Relatedly, I press the issue, Dr. Craig, why do you call the Trinity he and not they or it? Since you have explicitly said over and over that you don't think the Trinity is a self. And his answer was that, hey, this is an established part of Christian tradition. Well, sure it is. But it's a part of Christian tradition which fits my theology and some others, and doesn't fit your theology, so long as you stick with the view that God is not a self. Now, Craig's recent thinking about identity and divinity in the New Testament involves a central argument, and I'll put this whole argument on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. It will be easier to follow along if you're actually looking at it. Premise 1. Any application of the term God to someone in the New Testament, which is not a case of direct address to him, is either predicative or predicative, that is, describing him as divine in some sense, or identifying, that is, identifying him with God, you know, asserting their numerical identity, but not both. Second premise. All such predicative or identifying statements about the Father and the Son are true. Step 3. In the New Testament, the Son and the Father are sometimes called God in the same sense. 4. If that same sense were identifying, then the Son and the Father would each be identical to the one God. 5. If the Son and the Father were each identical with the one God then the Son and the Father would be identical with one another. 6. But it is false that the Son and the Father are identical with one another. 7. And this is a conclusion from 1 through 6. Therefore, 
Whenever any New Testament author says that the Father or the Son is God, he must be predicating divinity of him, that is, describing him as in some sense divine. And then step eight, the final conclusion, which I think follows from one and seven. Therefore, no New Testament author ever applies the word God to the Father or to the Son in order to identify him with God. As best I can tell, something like this argument is valid. And so the question is, is it also sound? Does this argument also have only true premises? If it does, then we have to accept the conclusions as true as well. Now, some of the premises, I think, are really obviously true. Five, if the Son and the Father were each identical with the one God, then the Son and the Father would be identical with one another. That premise, I think, is self-evident. Things which are identical to the same thing have to be identical to one another. Of course, we're talking about numerical identity here. Premise six, is false that the Son and the Father are identical with one another. That one's not self-evident, but that one is going to be agreed to by any Christian who puts any degree of trust in the New Testament. So Dr. Craig and I would definitely agree about this. Why is it the Son and Father can't be identical with one another? Because we can see that they've differed at the same time. Right? There was a particular Saturday where the Son was dead and the Father was not dead. The Father sent his Son. The Son did not send his Son. The Son was tempted. The Father was not tempted, etc. Another premise I think that any conservative Christian will grant is premise two, all such predicative or identifying statements about the Father and the Son in the New Testament are true. Sure. For if the New Testament authors were saying that the Father and Son were God in the same sense, and that was identity, then they'd each be identical with the one God. Yeah, that has to be true, given that premise two is true, which says that all those statements are true. In other words, I think four follows from two, which most in this discussion will grant. So whether you accept the argument as sound really comes down to whether you think one and three are true. And I really don't know how you could establish three. In the New Testament, the Son and the Father are sometimes called God in the same sense. In other words, they would be ascribing the very same sort of divinity to the Father and to the Son. But don't forget that this New Testament Son seems to have limits which the Father lacks. For instance, knowing the day and the hour of his future return. And then there's premise one, which is far from self-evident. There are other kinds of is statements. There's an is of composition. There's an is of part or whole. There's an is of representation, etc. I mean, I guess I probably accept one. I'm not sure I'd have to see the whole catalog of different kinds of is statements to be sure whether or not I agreed with one, but I guess it's plausible, at least at first glance. So really, I think the most controversial premise is the third. Now, in the dialogue, Dr. Craig just, you know, asserted that that's true. It's obviously true. Most scholars think it's true. Well, I mean, look, if you accept Nicene tradition that the Father and Son are homoousion, and that means that they both share the divine essence, insofar as you're committed to that, you're going to have to find that in the New Testament somewhere. 
But did any of the New Testament authors actually assert any such thing? Why do you have so many people like Justin, Tertullian, Novation, Origen, Eusebius, the church historian, the other Eusebius? Why do you have all these people thinking that they're not divine in the same sense? If it in fact is so obvious that, yeah, obviously they're called God and it's predication and the author is clearly predicating the same kind of divinity of the Father and of the Son. This much is clear. That's surely a premise that needs to be argued for. Now, all in all, we might be a little suspicious here that we're just ruling out in advance, based on a philosophical argument, that any New Testament author may want to tell us that someone just is the one God himself. Right? We're saying, no, no, they can't be saying that. should be a little bit worried about that, I think. Now, in the course of our discussion, Dr. Craig made what, to my mind, is a bit of a backup point, which is that ancient people just didn't have any concept of identity in the way that we're talking about it, numerical identity. And if that's so, then I guess the New Testament authors just can't be making identity statements at all. So that could simplify this argument somewhat. Now, I don't think that's right at all, that ancient people lacked the concept of numerical identity. I think the few things I said in the discussion were correct, and I would add the following considerations. As others have pointed out, the concept of being the same thing as really goes hand in hand with our ability to refer to individual things. Suppose I think about X, and now I think about Y. Have I thought about the same thing twice, or have I just thought about some one thing X and some other thing Y? Anyone can wonder about that, which shows that anyone has the concept of numerical identity. They're asking uh, whether it is true or false that X just is Y, that X and Y are numerically one. I would add that I think that ancient people could have understood the validity of arguments like the following. If Paul is the same thing as Saul, then Saul is the same thing as Paul. And if Saul is the same thing as Paul, then Paul is the same thing as Saul. So this relation, same thing as, they would understand to be symmetrical. More abstractly, if A equals B, then B equals A. Also, any ancient person seems to me could understand that if Abe is the same thing as Abram, and Abram is the same thing as Abraham, then it must also be true that Abe, the first one mentioned, is the same thing as Abraham. So, they would understand that this same thing relation is transitive. That's another feature of our concept of identity. Couldn't any ancient person understand this, that necessarily Isaiah is the same thing as himself, and he can't possibly ever be the same thing as anything else? If they understand this, they would understand that the identity relation is reflexive, and necessarily so. It's a relation that something can bear only to itself. Finally, I think ancient people could understand reasoning like this. If the Messiah was to usher in an era of peace, and Jesus didn't usher in an era of peace, then Jesus and the Messiah are not one and the same thing, but are two. To say that is to say that they could imply the principle that logicians and philosophers call the indiscernibility of identicals. It's that some A and some B can only be one and the same if they have never differed in any way. And if they do differ, then they're not the same thing. They're two different things.
Okay, if they could grasp inferences like those, that shows that normal human adults, modern or ancient, have a built-in grasp of the concept of numerical sameness or identity, which in modern logics is just defined as the relation which is symmetrical, transitive, and necessarily reflexive, and which forces absolute indiscernibility. In other words, things, quote, things, they're not really things, they're really one thing. Things which are identical can't differ in any way. By the way, at one point, Craig mistakenly mentions not the indiscernibility of identicals, but the identity of indiscernibles, which is different than the indiscernibility of identicals, and which, in my view, is not self-evident. So in my view, the indiscernibility of identicals is obviously true. If A just is B, then A and B can't possibly differ in any way. The identity of indiscernibles would be that if A and B can't possibly differ in any way, then the one just is the other. And that is controversial. Some philosophers would insist that there could be things which couldn't differ. They're just linked somehow, and yet they really are two things. I don't really have a position on that. Now, since we're on identity, and we're talking about his claim that ancient people simply had no concept of numerical identity like we now have, I think he really owes us his own analyses of the claims that are assumed at John 17, 1-3, and at John 20, 17. I've given my own analyses of these in my lecture from way back in 2012 called God and His Son, The Logic of the New Testament, and I'll post a link for that on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org, and I'll even embed the relevant part of it, which is part three of three. In brief, I understand them to be assuming claims of quantification. If the Father is the only true God, that's to say that the Father has the status true God, and also, here's the quantification, for anything whatever, that thing is true God only if it just is the Father. That is a standard analysis like you would be taught in a logic class of claims like that the Father is the only true God. John 20.17 is similar but more complicated. I'll let you look at that if you're interested in logic and you want to see how you would parse the claims that Jesus makes there in modern logic. My point is, how exactly does Dr. Craig understand those claims? I think he owes us an account, honestly. In the next episode of the Trinity's Podcast, I will say a few things about Dr. Craig's proof texts for the deity of Christ, which he asserted in our discussion were fatal to Unitarianism. I'll also fess up to a factual mistake that I made, and I'll address his allegation that Unitarians are driven to just weird and even silly interpretations of the Bible. Finally, I'll catalog a number of, I think, important points that Dr. Craig did not have an answer to in our dialogue, and which I think really need addressing, not just by Dr. Craig, but by other would-be defenders of, quote, the doctrine of the Trinity as a biblical doctrine. This week's thinking music has been the track Retro Futuristic Space Atrium by Jesse Spillane. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org where you can listen to or download that entire track.
for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.